print our transmission unit. Can you work it? Well, sure. But, James, we've only got three minutes. If we can work out the position of those submarines, maybe we can reprogram them. But that comes from the top. 40 minutes. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of the IMMP podcast, the Intermillennium Media Project. My name is Matthew Porter. The name's Porter. Ian Porter. I should have expected that. You should have seen that coming. Because I'm his dad, he's my son, <laughs> and uh, I have made him watch another movie. Yes! And this is a movie we did watch once before. This is, because we've watched a bunch of these before. Long ago. This was when you were in high school, I guess. Yes, it was. We had a project, and it's again one of these things that gave birth to this podcast. We had a project to watch all of the James Bond movies. So we started with Dr. No and watched all of them. I think we got as far as the the last of the Timothy Dalton we didn't get into Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, we for we, some reason we got distracted, didn't continue. We dropped off at Brosnan, but it it was actually kind of a continuation for me because we watched The Prisoner. <laughs> and then you're like we should watch all the James Bonds starting from the first and going on. You're and right. we kept going. So I just had this like year of year of the spy in my media, which really really kind of messed with me but i think it was in a good way <laughs> well we talked about the prisoner early in the podcast in, or in, in an early episode but uh, we have not until now talked about a james bond movie oh yeah and i'm not sure this is not necessarily the last james Mo bond movie we will talk about but because it is the first i decided that we should start with the first james bond movie that i saw in a movie theater when it came out oh so we're going to be talking about The Spy Who Loved Me. Ah, yes. This is a good one. I, I, I think of the ones we could have gone with to start, like this is an excellent one, but I admit it, that might be because I'm a little biased because there's a character that is just so much fun. I want him to have his own side series. And this is his intro. So I'm, I was excited that this is the one we chose. I'd actually been thinking James Bond recently as well. Uh, I'd listened to a a uh, a James Bond rewatch podcast that had gone through other movies and, and had been like going through, getting excited for new Bond coming out. And so I'd I'd been revisiting these things more recently myself in my mind. And I when I remembered which one this was, I was like, oh, yes, we're talking about that one because I was just been thinking about how cool some of the stuff in this one specifically is. And this movie, I think, really, it's, it wasn't only the first Bond movie that I saw. I think it marks uh, a change in the Bond movies to a new era that didn't last forever, but this and the few movies that followed were just different from a lot of the Bond movies before and since. This one doesn't just give stuff to the audience. It shares with them. It, it, it goes back and forth. This is a covalent bond. Chemistry joke. <sighs> <laughs> you got that out of your system now? Might have. <laughs> not <right>. sure. <laughs> if, uh, if not, I might have to bail. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> Dang it. Thank you. So where were we? I don't remember. <laughs> so, right. The Spy Who Loved Me. Yes. I was aware of other... I was aware of James Bond in general. And I had seen bits of some of the earlier Bond movies on TV, the TV edited versions, when my, my parents watched them. And at least one of my brothers was really, really into James Bond. I remember there were there were a lot of James Bond models and a James Bond matchbox car of the Aston Martin mm -hmm. uh, with an ejector seat <laughs> and a tiny passenger who would be ejected by the ejector seat and would very often wind up inside the radiator across the room. So my dad <laughs> had to often just pull the cover off the radiator to get the James Bond figure out of the tiny, uh, uh, the tiny James Bond figure out of the uh, radiator. 
And also, I recall James Bond bedspreads in my brother's room. And they must have been from the, I guess it was of the Goldfinger era, because I think Oddjob was one of the characters on the James Bond bedsheets. It's amazing to me how much marketing of merchandise to kids there was about some of those early James Bond movies. Yeah, James Bond is one of those interesting things because it's, marketing-wise, it is this odd mix of, like, gadgets and such are cool, but it's supposed to be hidden and covert and secret, so <laughs> it's easy for them to blend in, so you've got to just put Bond's face on the product sometimes. But a spy whose face, you know, doesn't make sense. So there's this always this weird tension of marketed James Bond objects. And there's the challenge that uh, James Bond's face changed a few times, continues to do so. Oh, yeah. The time lord that is James Bond. <laughs> and probably the first James Bond movie I was aware of in the culture when it came out was Live and Let Die which was 1972, I want to say? Uh, 73, actually. 73, okay. And I was aware of that because, well, for one thing, the song by Paul McCartney was everywhere on AM radio for a few months there. And I listened to a lot of AM music radio at the time. But also, I just remember there being a lot of talk and chatter in the, in the culture around me about this movie coming out, and it was supposed to be so violent and so weird and sexy. And are they really allowed to put this in movie theaters just for normal people to go see? Kind of vibe. This is being filtered through my very young perceptions from the time. But that's kind of the feel I had. So um, many years later, when my dad said, as he sometimes did, yeah, we're going to go to the movies, we're going to go to the Franklin movie theater, and we're going to see the new James Bond movie, I was just, like, amazed. Like, I was afraid I was, I, I was supposed to, I, I didn't want to point out, like, or ask, are you sure? Because I was afraid he'd reconsider. <laughs> because I wanted to see a James Bond movie. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, that, that's, so, that's so wild to me. And this was... 1977, which is a pretty uh, significant year for movies, because this is the year Star Wars came out. Oh, yeah. This is the year Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out. This doesn't feel like it's from the same era of film. It doesn't, does it? It feels, does it feel older, like, that it, like it's from an earlier time? It feels parallel. It's like this is a perfection of a style that had been done. Meanwhile, those other ones feel like the the beginning of an era of film that was moving into. It's like it's like one is tailing off and one is ramping up, and those two slopes happen to overlap during this one time. I think that's an interesting way to think about it, and I, I think you're right, because it really is from a different tradition of filmmaking. This is the, I don't know how many previous James Bond movies there had been before this. Well, this was the 10th James Bond movie. So it's part of that tradition, which are also based upon a series of novels that started you know, years before the first James Bond movie. So it had its own little world that it was part of. And Star Wars, it was from, it was a combination of modern filmmaking and styles and themes from the really going back to the 30s or earlier in that kind of space opera so that was a different tradition on a completely different path and then of course close encounters of the third kind is probably the the most modern of the three but yeah they're they're all like they're from different worlds just the fact that this film it does a lot more like i wouldn't it, it does wide camera shots to establish a place it does it it doesn't move the camera much at times but it also like its angles its lighting its tone all just feel different it visually doesn't look the same and the the pace of its story is this 
it, it's trying to get a rise and a fall in a different rhythm because it's doing these small tension moments as especially with the spy who loved me who has a lot of setup to do to be able to tell a story where i don't i spoilers we talk about movies but yeah spoilers spoilers in general a movie at this time set in the era they did that is trying to say the both sides of the cold war can halt what they're doing and team up to punch uh rich business executives mutually is a very different feel and requires a setup that has a different pace than a lot of other stories would do. Yeah, it really was bringing that 70s detente um, approach to Western and Soviet relations into the James Bond world in a way it was never quite there before. Yeah. And because of that, or, or, or maybe that is because, this is the first James Bond movie whose plot was driven by the simply crazy billionaire supervillain. All of the other Bond movies, the, the scheme that Bond was attempting to foil, they, it was always based on either some kind of strategic military advantage that the, U, the, the Soviet Union or uh, China were, was trying to achieve, or some purely financial motive on the part of the supervillain. Mm-hmm. Like you know, Goldfinger wants to irradiate the U.S. gold supply so that gold prices go up so the gold he owns is worth more. In this one, it was simply our bad guy wants to create a new civilization beneath the sea, so he is going to cause all of the superpowers on the land to destroy one another so that I can go and create my new Atlantis in peace. It's just insane. I mean, I'm not in the context of the movie. He could have done it if it weren't for James Bond, but it wasn't any otherwise politically or financially comprehensible goal. Yeah, I mean, the movie on either side of this in the James Bond timeline has that sort of thing, but that's an era of James Bond we're talking about. Well, the one before this man with the golden gun. Yeah, that's a man about his pride, not about the money. Oh, but at least the plot. I guess was so. a financial plot. And then this is followed by Moonraker. And yeah, Moonraker, Mo- Moonraker is, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, <laughs> it's in many ways a remake of The Spy Who Loved Me. It is, but <laughs> in space. The Moonraker Moonraker is remaking The Spy Who Loved Me after seeing the success of Star Wars. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is it absolutely is. So I think maybe we should talk a bit about, about the plot of The Spy Who Loved Me. Yes. And right from the very beginning, even though we're talking about this being different from other Bond movies, right from the beginning, it is derivative of another Bond movie. It starts out with a submarine being swallowed by a much bigger vessel. Just like at the beginning of You Only Live Twice, when a spacecraft is swallowed by a much bigger spacecraft. And it turns out that's part of Blofeld's plot, which is ultimately backed by an, I think, an unnamed Chinese power that, or an unnamed Asian power that's obviously Red China uh, by the end. But yeah, that whole giant ship eating submarines, giant spaceship eating smaller space capsules, it's, it's the, pretty derivative. I'm just imagining the, the James Bond uh, food, uh, like a food chart where it's like the tiny boat swallowed by a bigger boat, swallowed by a bigger boat. It just like goes <laughs> along the line. And what's really concerning about this, well, there's concerning about the fact that both the U S and Soviet, um, ballistic missile subs have gone missing. And the main concern is how did they, whoever took these and however they were taken, how did they know where they were? How did they track our submarines and it the the macguffin becomes the submarine tracking system not a missile guidance system which is the standard macguffin for 70s uh thrillers but a submarine tracking system oh yeah which turns out to be like checking for their exhaust pretty much if i remember correctly kind of a uh, heat signatures in the wakes like, yeah which is they, pretty clever for given satellite technology in the late 70s that's yeah that's yeah. cutting edge <sighs> 
there is something about seeing the parallels they're doing right from the beginning when we see subs going missing of uh, the different agencies being informed their their uh, submarines are missing. Where the American is like this giant big hallway with this very cluttered desk and this like, we've got a lot of stuff going on in that sense. But then the the Russian one, the 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 so the the other side, it's just this weird forced perspective office where it's like, like why is he doing his work on a single desk in the middle of a funhouse? What's yeah, going on? Like, you know, the KGB is the the Ministry of German Expressionism. Like, yes. What are you doing in this giant cavernous room? Although I don't think it's the same first time. Though I don't think it's the first time we've seen that room. I think we see, if not that same room, another set that this is supposed to evoke early in uh, the spy, um, not the spy of me, this is, that's this, early in From Russia with Love. Oh, okay. When we see the KGB officials assigning the, the younger KGB agent to go out and seduce James Bond. Uh, why, yes, agent. If I step backwards in the room, it looks like I get smaller. <laughs> if I step closer to you, I get bigger. It's optical illusion. It's great. <laughs> it's like, why? Why is well, this you your know, design? CIA had MK Ultra. <laughs> the KGB has a funhouse room. Oh, goodness. That is one of the parallels they do early on. The, they, they set up the... K- they have to parallel these as two powers that are matched in strength in some ways. But they also want to give them each their advantages, and they make the KGB intelligence a little more precise, and they make the like they make Bond's gadgets a little bit more advanced, and that's like it's that pitting of, you know, I've got the tech, but you've got the wear, and that that's a brilliant parallel because it's. Making the two characters that we wind up following the same wouldn't be as interesting as what they do here, and they're already showing that before you introduce the agents doing anything. Oh, and I shamefully misspoke a few moments ago when I said that it was an American sub and a Russian sub that had gone missing. It was not an American sub, and shame on me for saying that it was. It was a British sub. It was a Royal Navy submarine. An American sub is involved later. But this is a, a British submarine, which is why, of course, it's MI6 that's getting involved. And we're pitting not the CIA, but MI6 and the KGB going head to head here. Yes. And as you suggested, and as the title suggests, of course, each agency sends someone on the trail of this submarine tracking system. And they have parallel missions and wind up colliding. One of them, of course, is 007, James Bond. Introduced as he is supposed to do, I guess, with a companion in a wood cabin followed by Ski Chase. Yes, a terrific opening for James Bond where we're seeing him in this this great Ski Chase with the most disco version of the James Bond musical themes ever. And it's kind of awesome. Message received. We are waiting. Over and out. Death by Disco at the hands of Bond. (laughs) And lots of great ski photography few gadgets like the um the rifle built into the ski pole this is one of those james bond things i see like parodied and referenced a lot just this opening this fight is so classic in some ways a weird example one of the games i loved as a kid was a james bond pastiche Spy Fox by Humongous Entertainment. Right. And there is an entire game that opens just like Bond is introduced in this movie with a ski lodge and a a ski chase, but it's done with kid cartoon and wacky sound effects instead of gun poles (laughs) and death. And it's wild to see the thing that that's referencing when I'm older. 
And all I can do is have flashbacks to the cartoon sound effects I'm used to. <laughs> I'm guessing that it doesn't start with Spy Fox in this cabin with a woman who turns out is seducing Spy Fox because she's a double agent. I think there might be someone who's a double agent with a thing. That game okay. was wild. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't totally rule it out. Spy yeah, Fox got, is pretty cool. I've got to replay game. those at some point. <laughs> and uh oh, and and James Bond leaves this cabin because he gets the message from the digital watch that can unspool a strip of like Dymo label maker tape, the embossing kind. Yeah. How big is this? How big is the <laughs> There's no roll. What? I, 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 this I'm, is one of those tech things that bugs me actually. Maybe it's looped through the watch band or something, but either way, I think it is capable of printing out something exactly as long <laughs> as the message that he happened to get, which, you know, you could have abbreviated a little bit to make that more convenient, but I wanted to make sure we could read it. The digital watch alone is very cool 70s tech. Oh, yeah. STFBAD. Dash. <laughs> so Bond is, is recalled. He escapes, of course, the, uh, the, the ski assassins who are trying to kill him, and he gets back to, uh, to headquarters. Well, he escapes with the most James Bond is a bad spy, good agent tech ever which is the giant british flag parachute which is the least spy gadget ever i guess he figures well at that point they're gonna know who i am <laughs> they're gonna so. know who i am so i might as well <laughs> flaunt it and he must have had that escape route planned out because otherwise why is the only supply that he's carrying a parachute on his back oh yeah but then we also well actually is it before that we get the uh the introduction of our other agent though um i don't know the sequence but it might be because our other agent they do a fake out with us because the kgb is calling in their top agent agent triple x and we wind and up it's vin diesel <laughs> oh goodness that would be good no oh <laughs> would be a cool movie would be an excellently spy cool movie. who loved me starring roger moore and vin diesel Oh goodness! There's a fan community for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a whole, a whole section on uh, Ao3. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but they do a fake out because you think the of the two people uh, in this was it a hotel room? I couldn't tell where this was. It was they. It was like the 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 people's rest and recuperation. It was essentially a spa for high level party officials and operatives. Mm. So there's two people in the room, and the call comes in, and we think it's going to be the guy, and then he gets out of the way so that she can take the call. Yeah, I think the guy was just part of her rest and recuperation, and she is Agent Triple X. Oh, that was that was uh, the person she loved. Oh, that's true. Because he's going to be going off to uh, to apprehend someone out in the mountains. Oh, so you that, that answers the sequence question. Yes. So this was before the James Bond escape. Because he was one of the people going after James Bond. Mm-hmm. But she takes the call. And she is Agent Triple X, and she is Major Anya Amasova of uh, the KGB. Yes. And they never mention, but I'm guessing a Triple like, X agent is around the equivalent of a double O agent in MI6. Which also has fun with the X's and O's aspect they're doing there. <laughs> Very true. I like that. They've got these two agents, both that then pulled pulled to assigned to these tasks and they wind up meeting up during they meet up in egypt yes because that's where mi6 has tracked where the submarine tracking system was put on the market they've tracked it to some you know, black market technology and arms dealer in egypt so that's why they wind up there but they are pursued there by our villain's henchman after we get a giant villain scene of him and his giant underwater base that rises up out of the water and we get a um a kill the servants moment yes to prove to us how evil the evil guy is he's got a shark <laughs> yeah on this episode of shark tank you don't want to be put into the shark tank and the villain in this one is carl stromberg carl stromberg yeah played by kurt jurgens or jurgens kind of a generic in some ways but played very well, I think. Played very well, completely overshadowed by the best Bond henchman ever to hit the screen. Uh, you're going to have arguments on that, but go ahead. 
It's Jaws. <laughs> Jaws is amazing. Jaws is an excellent character because he is not just a Bond henchman who somehow has powerful metal teeth that he uses to bite through solid objects and he's like he's like the one guy told that he's allowed to acknowledge what on the set is made out of craft foam and it's fun but he's he's the bond henchman so good they had to bring him back he's the one so expressive that he actually almost has he has wit that rivals bond at times with the amount he responds to his environment a couple of years later there would have been a saturday morning cartoon just about his character oh yeah and this is played by richard keel who is very big very expressive Kind of comedically self-aware in this performance. I think it is it is a great Bond villain. I think there are going to be people who are, um, and I, you're right, not villain, but henchman. There are people who are going to think, well, you can't get better than Odd Job. But yeah, Jaws is up there. And by the way, this is not the first time we've seen Richard Keel, who plays Jaws, in something we've watched for this podcast. Oh? He was in an episode of Kolchak the Night Stalker. He was. He played like the giant Native American demon. That was him? That was him. Oh, goodness. I remember that episode. The Diablero. Oh, goodness. That was played by yeah, Richard Keel. Oh, that was wild. <laughs> but yeah, he, he makes that, this movie in some ways. Oh, yeah. Because you want to see Bond fighting him. But you kind of expect that once Bond gets into the room, the main bad guy's gone. There's not a lot of fight left <laughs> in the other guy. And he's got this combination of just he's enormous and he's strong. And he has these steel teeth, which is his usual method of dispatching people. Yeah, which were apparently awful prosthetics. I can imagine they were not very comfortable for uh, for Keel to wear for filming. Oh, I, I I read somewhere like you you couldn't he couldn't wear them for very long, which means that if you're watching the film, like the cuts of when he smiles and such are so short. Oh, not just for drama, but because like no, they're not going to make him go for longer than that. <laughs> but he just gets to rip stuff up and break down things and like not care. He he's very much an un, like an infinitely moving f- like force. <laughs> That Bond has to dodge as much as he has to fight. And the plot then takes the, uh, them from Egypt and around Egypt with various fights against Jaws and competition between our, our Russian and our British agent. And of course, all the, the little bits of flirting begin between the, the Russian and the British agent. And from there, they achieve the goal of that part of their mission. They get the microfilm. And it turns out the microfilm was kind of a red herring. It didn't really have the core of the technology that they were supposed to get back and protect. It kind of had the receipts for the purchase in some. Right. It was, uh, it was just supposed to get the buyers interested, but it wasn't really what was for sale. But that's the point at which MI6 and the KGB have, are, are officially joining forces and order their two agents to work together. There is a very fun thing of him walking into, like, part of a ruined temple in Egypt, and there's just an MI6 office built in there <laughs> with coat rack, and him keeps walking through the door, and then, like, halts and does a double take, because there's the KGB uh, uh, lead with his own little desk put over off to in a room, just like he had in the strange funhouse room, and you're like, <laughs> what are you doing here? And it's like, it's this fully functional... MI6 office, and, and not just office, installation, because Major Boothroyd is there with a whole Q laboratory. Yeah, that seems a little wild. That's weird. But that's where we get a lot of the classic James Bond stuff, where he's getting his supplies and his gadgets from Q, and he's getting his instructions from M. And we see the uh, Amasova getting her instructions from her uh, superior. And then they have to work together, which they do grudgingly and then less grudgingly. And then very tensely when she learns that, you know, the guy that he shot with the ski pole back in the uh, mountains, that was uh, her squeeze. But it's when we're done, 
we're we're enemies again. Yes. And I'm going to have a gun. I will complete this mission with you, and then I will kill you. She makes that very clear. She makes that very clear, and he's just like, fair. <laughs> but, you know, they're both good enough at comp- compartmentalizing that they do uh, proceed with the mission. And this involves Bond posing as a marine biologist to visit with Stromberg and get a, some sense of of what kind of person he is and what he might be up to and then another surveillance mission using the submersible lotus yeah it's like just like i'm in a car chase drive my car off the pier hit button and it turns into a sub and it's her just like really confused (laughs) the chase that leads up to that is worth mentioning too because it's one of these escalating chases it starts with James Bond driving this Lotus being chased by somebody with a, a motorcycle and sidecar and the sidecar turns out to be a missile. And then, of course, there's cars full of people with guns. And then there's the helicopter. And uh, it's just, you know, it keeps escalating in the way those uh, James Bond chases do. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it eventually ends with them driving off a pier. And then driving back up onto land later. <laughs> Although I gotta admit that has one of the things that really confuses and annoys me the most out of this movie. What's that? When they drive back up out of the water in their submarine, he rolls down the window and tosses out a fish. I did wonder about that. If a fish got into your submarine, something went wrong with your submarine. <laughs> yes. That's a bad sign, Bond. <laughs> yeah, somebody decided let's go for this comedy beat and not really thinking about what this means. All it is is like it's an error report to Q branch. <laughs> I mean, did that thing get in through the air vent? What happened? I don't know. (laughs) But it is one of the nice, one of the best larger gadget type things in a James Bond movie. And and I love that when he does, going back a bit, when he does the marine biologist thing, there's a couple of instances of like, oh, is he going to be found out? And then Bond just like has fishfacts.org memorized to be able to explain <laughs> stuff. And even with all of that, the moment Bond leaves the room, our bad guy is smart enough to just be like, no, no, that's an agent. Go kill him. It's like, <laughs> yeah, you get this entire thing, an entire like multiple instances of the, of the, oh, is he gonna, is he gonna? And then they still just like, Nope, sick him. <laughs> has that ever really worked? Has any know. one of these meetings that James Bond has had over the years ended in anything other than, that, well, he's a spy. I kill him. Oh, absolutely. It's like, this doesn't... Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but it does give you that first confrontation, that unarmed confrontation between James Bond and the villain, which which is important structurally. Because the next time they meet, it's going to be violent and it's going to be with um lethal stakes because bond that's the point at which that surveillance through the uh, um with the the submarine is how they finally piece together what stromberg's plan is and that is to have the russian sub that's been captured destroy new york and have the british sub that's been captured destroy I think Moscow and have the American sub that they captured towards the end destroy a target in China and essentially antagonize all of the nuclear superpowers into destroying one another. Because apparently under the water will be safe when the rest of the world's irradiated. Yeah, it's it's not like debris will fall into an ocean and contaminate that. <laughs> it's not like water is what we use to actually absorb radiation in nuclear reactors. <laughs> this guy doesn't know his science and it bugs me. So that final confrontation does occur when James Bond is on the American sub and the American sub is captured. Bond uh, and Amasova get aboard the super tanker that is Stromberg's mobile base in his submarine swallowing and then there's lots of fight scenes lots of armed conflict on the the tanker i do find it interesting that since we have all three powers here we get to see the the third um like ability that puts america on the map alongside britain and the kgb in this what's that the kgb the the russian sub is a little a little sharper a little swifter in terms of their their action the british have all the tech and gadgets and the Americans just have the sheer 
numbers of eager people. <laughs> and that is their power. It's just like, like you just need a bunch of guys willing to charge that room. It's the Americans. And, and that's, that works. <laughs> and that's how Bond and Amasova almost succeed in, in their attempt to infiltrate the base. Because when the American sub is is swallowed by the tanker, they just sort of just mingle among the crew as the crew is being held captive. Uh, but, of course, Stromberg finds them. The fact that one of them is wearing a British <laughs> naval uniform you know, on an American sub is definitely going to yeah, be a little more obvious. Although it is cool that in this, above all of the other James Bond movies, the fact that Bond is a commander in the British Navy is, like, relevant. He gets to wear his own uniform in more scenes than he ever does. Yeah, he actually, like, does his thing. What? <laughs> okay. Yeah. I also am really confused by this base because it's got like giant helipads in the middle of this structure. And then it's got like of the, their main base. And then it docks with this giant boat. And the boat has like rail cars inside it on like a maglev track. Yeah. And it has like a whole lot of above ceiling, like. Like, in the ceiling, like, track lifts for crane maneuvering, and it's like, it feels like you didn't have a consistent design team, bad guy, and more designers actually means more people who might tell someone about your evil plans. Yeah, it is an enormous, enormous ship. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, there are internal transit systems and, and, and the like, and I mean, it's big enough to swallow three ballistic missile submarines and still have plenty of room to be a mobile base for the bad guy and this was a it was a super tanker and the name of this was the um the paris i think would be the uh pronunciation think, yeah. l-i-p-a-r-u-s that was a real ship what that was a real super ship commissioned a few years earlier to do the opening thing didn't actually have the sub swallowing opening thing at the front but they kind of tied this into reality by, I mean, this was, this commissioning of the La Paris was a big enough thing that people who are into ships would have heard of it. I certainly didn't at the time. And to suddenly have this as the thing in the middle of a James Bond movie was kind of, kind of cool, I would think. Kind of blurring those lines between fantasy and reality. Yeah. But yeah, one of those ships big enough that it needs internal transport if you're going to use it the way these guys were. Wow. But uh, but his the, his other base, his I guess submersible but static base, uh, stationary base, which I think uh, he called Atlantis base. Yeah, that was kind of going to be the centerpiece of his new Atlantis. That was a pretty cool model because it was kind of crab like, unless it's the tendency of all supervillain bases to become crab shaped. I don't know. Wait, wait. <laughs> This James Bond versus a giant enemy crab. <laughs> and he does eventually attack its weak, attack point, its for weak point for maximum damage. damage. Yes. Yes. <laughs> or he actually, he delays the Americans from doing so because the Americans have orders to destroy this base after they free themselves from the, oh, okay. uh, from the La Paris and foil the plot to have the nuclear missiles go flying around. They still needed to take out Stromberg. And Bond insists he needs an hour because Stromberg has taken Amasova back with him to the Atlantis base. And he, of course, wants to rescue her. But yeah, it's this is a James Bond film with two base explosions because they get to blow up the ship. Then they get to have the most strenuous, like, they've got to unparallel park the American sub and they're just trying to <laughs> flee the boat before it sinks. And it's... That's a really long but strenuous scene. Yeah. And there there are enough uh survivors from like all three submarine crews to get aboard the one submarine that they managed to escape in. Yeah. So yeah, a lot, a lot of uh a lot of brave sailors from all three countries wind up uh falling in their efforts to thwart Stromberg's plot. And uh there's a bunch of Stromberg men on the the British and the Russian one. Uh, Russian uh, subs, and they fire their. They're going to fire their missiles, but they retarget it. So they blow up each other, and the Americans are going to blow up the base. And then we get fight in the base. 
Right, right. There's kind of an early hacking scene. Yeah. Where they have to decrypt the coordinates so they can feed the false coordinates to the ship, two ships that are out there ready to, the two boats that are out there ready to blow up cities, to blow up each other. That's, uh, I forgot about that. And they definitely, for the American crew, pull like, these are interesting people that might have their own thing. They're not James Bond, but they are like, they've got their own little divisions and people with skills inside there. That's They're- something I like about the James Bond movies at their best. He gathers these extremely competent, faithful allies, each with their own specialties. Well, have a good time, Mr. Bond. We're off to go fight Nemo. It's like, that kind of is what it feels like at times. Oh, and one of the last gadgets we see from Bond, this is something that was like dropped for him with the U.S. submarine, and he finally gets to use it at the end when he has to go save on a oh, yes. before the thing is, is blown up. Essentially a jet ski. Oh, the flat pack jet ski. But when I saw this in 1977 as a kid in the movie theater, I had never seen a jet ski. And they're pulling these, and, and I think it was supposed to be a little novel and unusual because they're pulling parts out of this bag before it's assembled. And there's a seat, and there's a what looks like bicycle handlebars, and then there's a flap of some kind. And then they assemble it into uh, a ski craft. And I thought that was pretty awesome. I thought, wow, that would be a fun thing to ride around on. Little did I know that would kind of be a thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, the weird thing is that that sort of design is more common now with these little tiny like kit car thingies that you yes. can get. It's like, but the idea of this just tiny little box that just unfolds, it's like a transformer you can ride. <laughs> So he just rides that from the submarine to the Atlantis base while the submarine just stands off and and watches the clock until they have no choice but to obey the orders from the Pentagon to destroy the base. And that means we get, of course, a big confrontation between Bond and Stromberg, which doesn't go well for Stromberg, a big confrontation between uh, Bond and Jaws, which- At the shark tank. At the shark tank. Which doesn't go well for the shark. Another kind of derivative <laughs> thing, there was a bad guy with a shark tank in Thunderball, I believe. Yeah. But, yeah, Stromberg, he's a, the ocean guy. He's got to have a shark tank. He's got to have a shark tank. So then it's you know, Jaws versus Jaws, because remember, this is just a couple of years after the movie Jaws. Point. Um, and you know, we literally see Richard Keel wrestling a shark, and who's going to bite each other, the other to death first? I kind of wanted him to lose his metal teeth and, like, pull teeth off of the shark and show up with shark teeth later. It was not kind of cool that the, the, the fact that his teeth were steel was part of his downfall because Bond manages to catch him with a giant electromagnet. Yeah, next time use non-ferrous dentures. <laughs> this is just really kind of, it, it wraps up really swiftly, I must say. Yeah, they, these movies tend to race to the end, and then they're always capped off with the... Uh, all the, you know, the sexy jokes about Bond and whoever he's, he's connected with. It's the in fact- this case, it's Amosova. Who decides in the last minute not to kill him? Well, it's also the fact that they escape in, Strongber- in Stromberg's uh, escape pod, which is apparently a bed surrounded by liquor bottles. Yeah. I, I mean, guess that's, I, I that's guess that- emergency escape supplies, huh? I guess so. It's like, I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to float away. I'm going to sit in this pink cushioned bed look out my little porthole and drink (laughs) to each his own that's that's a method of escape to wait for rescue but they take full advantage of this and it ends with an oh bond kind of moment after they get together so it's hard to say that it's a typical james bond plot but it's become kind of an iconic plot of this crazy zillionaire wants to destroy the world for some obscure reason but it does give us a great showcase for some of these classic bond era characters i mean bond himself this particular roger this to the end of the roger moore era i think are in some ways my least favorite james bond as a character movies yeah despite my fondness for this movie being uh, that i saw it so young the character, even at the time, I didn't quite connect with this character. 
And it also has not aged well. It has not aged as well in terms of him. And definitely, this is a Bond who quips because it's what Bond does, instead of quipping for a reason in some ways. Yes, yes. It's very, it's almost a wink at the camera every 10 minutes. Like, it, getting really meta, there are Bonds who quip because it is how they ingratiate themselves to people. And there are Bonds who quip because... Have you seen the stuff I have to do? It's this or go mad. Yes. And he doesn't have either. He is honestly a bit... the. F- he's kind of a flat bond in that sense. Yeah, this guy is quipping more in the, if you like this, catch my set at the Chuckle Factory next <laughs> Saturday. Like, the comedy is the point. And it's, no. Oh. I, if you want me to take James Bond in any way seriously, it can't be that. But this, but his movies have, these ones have the most world building because they are almost the most heightened and cartoony in some ways. The plots are just a little crazier. The, the stakes are just a little vague in, uh, how are you going to get that done? But we don't, it's not a question as to whether or not you could. It's just as to whether or not we can stop you. Yeah. They verge away from, Cold War spy thriller and into superhero story territory. Yes. And it's interesting to see how this era of Bond is almost the one I wound up knowing the most. Oh, really? Because this was such a heightened era of Bond, when I encountered Bond as media out in the world, it was because as a video game fan, GoldenEye had changed the game on N64. It changed everything because first-person shooter with multiplayer was a thing, in part thanks to this in that sense. It defined some of that. And character references of Scaramanga and the Golden Gun, of the Lotus that was a submarine, of the tech and gadgets and such, from all across Bond, gets condensed into the styling of this era of Bond, because this one was the receptive, heightened version that could absorb it all. Oh, that's so interesting. When, so when Bond as just a general media product was presented, and that's how I ran into it, it almost centered around this and then extended in both directions time-wise. And I wound, watching the films with you and watching this again now, it's less revealing new things of Bond, and it's more categorizing things I know of Bond as a whole into individual films and compartments in that sense. Oh, you're starting with the, the, the big pool of Bond stuff and then learning which compartment to put them in. Right. And that's interesting because GoldenEye, the video game, that was well into the, or near, near the beginning at least, of the Pierce Brosnan era. Of James Bond. I mean, the first Brosnan movie was Goldeneye. Exactly. But but that's interesting that I guess this era of Bond, was it something about the style being receptive as you described it? Or was it just, this was the most iconic version of Bond, the one people knew the most? It was iconic. It was full of iconic things. And if you wanted to give, if you wanted to give the more Bond one of the Connery Bond's gadgets, it didn't seem weird. But if you did that in reverse, it's Uh, too new for him. Yeah. And if you wanted to pull a plot line that was dramatic enough, it would always fit within the Roger Moore era. And if you, and thinking about the media I'd seen, you were putting, you know, Odd Job and Jaws and the Golden Gun and all of these, and uh, the, the watch that shoots darts and all of these things alongside the timer bombs from the the Brosnan era and lines that were written more like they're out of the Connery stuff. And it all was just mashed together when you ran into the media as it was being presented. So it always <laughs> gravitated towards this as the middle. It saddens me that none of the examples, it saddens but does not surprise me, that none of the examples you just came up with mention the Timothy Dalton era of James Bond. I know. Because movie-wise, I've got to say Sean Connery Bond movies are the most fun to watch and rewatch, I think, especially the early ones. 
but probably my, You Only Live Twice might be my favorite. But Timothy Dalton might be my favorite James Bond, or a close second to Sean Connery. But I admit that part of that is because they started making the Timothy Dalton James Bond movies very soon after I had finally gone back and read all the James Bond novels. Dated as they were, I really enjoyed those, or many of them. And especially after Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton was a return to a James Bond who was much more like the character from the books. Somebody who was tough and bitter and hard-drinking and... His sense of humor wasn't for fun. It was a defense mechanism. Uh, so I really like, especially um, The Living Daylights, I like Timothy Dalton. But I'll have to admit, by because they brought Bond so much more, more down to earth than the movies before or after, there's not a lot to play with in the Timothy Dalton movies. Dalton, so he Dalton didn't have the f- yeah. most fun gadgets, didn't have the most fun quips, didn't even ha- even have the coolest clothes. Okay. Dalton Bond is great spy films. They're not Bond films, and Bond films are not spy films. If what you're looking for is The Spy Who Loved Me, or The World Is Not Enough, or, or even a, a Daniel Craig, which is another Bond I, who, I think Daniel Craig kind of blends those together yes, very Dan- well. Yes, Daniel Craig is taking some of the 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 over-the-topness and, and smudging it into reality. It's like, right. like no, they coat this with enough layers of realism that it becomes harsh, and then focus on that, that's harsh. Ooh. Ow. It's like, (laughs) you know, it's the difference of like, when one of them takes a punch, what do you feel? Do you think this is going to be a quip? Do you expect the punch back? Do you say, do you feel how much that must have hurt? Right. (laughs) Those are all different things. When Bond gets hit, what do you respond? And that's kind of one of the ways you can review a Bond. I like that. That's, that's an interesting metric. And since we've now mentioned every other James Bond movie actor, shout out to uh, George Lazenby. He, ah, yes. He does not get enough respect. I think that On Her Majesty's Secret Service is a good movie. It's got Diana Rigg, even if you don't like George Lazenby, which I kind of do. It's got Diana Rigg. <laughs> uh, so I, I think there are a few flaws in the design and direction of On Her Majesty's Secret Service that diminish it. But on the whole, I like it. It's a good movie. Oh, yeah. <sighs> and that's an interesting bit in The Spy Who Loved Me. Bond's late wife, Tracy, is mentioned. Yeah, this one has in the continuity. The Spy Who Loved Me. And very briefly, and it's clear this is not a subject he wants to talk about, let alone open up about, let alone joke about. Do not talk to him about Tracy and what happened to her. For, and I like that. For, a, for almost a moment, you get a Craig Bond in the middle of a Moore movie. And that's the one little glimmer of the James Bond of the novels in this entire movie, The Spy Who Loved Me. That just his reaction to that is the one little glimmer of the the novels, Bond. Oh yeah. But one thing that none of the other uh James Bond movies has are are the seventies fashions, like the ones you get in the Roger Moore movies. The the tuxedo with the flared trousers oh (sighs) they're ridiculous and yet there's something cool about them yeah i don't know that anyone in the entire world other than roger moore could make that look good no one could But he does he makes that look good no one could do that better (laughs) yes i got the title song yes yes yeah pretty good song decent song yeah and it was popular uh, as a lot of the james bond themes were and that late 70s, it was kind of the not quite into the 80s style, but it was um, it was the, the, the weirder parts of 70s style had become mainstream enough that you see a lot of, of that in this, uh, in this Bond movie. With the lot, wide lapels, the wide flares on the trousers. Oh, yeah. Very 70s haircuts on a lot of people. Bond films definitely keep an era of when they were made. They're, they're snapshots of style. So that's important. 
Part of that is just because that was so important all through. And this is something else that goes back to the novels. The novels drop a lot of brand names and, of course, starts out in the 50s, but it's still wanting to show this guy's on the cutting edge of of style and fashion. And and it, a lot of it was from a sense of he might die tomorrow, so he might as well spend his money on clothes and food and things that he enjoys right now. But... Uh, but it's kind of surreal then to see that continue and always be updated through the movies for decades and decades. Kind of makes you wonder what a newer Bond might spend his money on in some ways. Like, what's his new thing? Hmm. I don't know. If Bond is driven by FOMO, what would happen? I don't know. I think a lot of it will still come down to food and clothes and cars, maybe some other gadgets, but most of exactly. those are provided by his employer. Hmm. We are kind of leaning towards our, our questions there if we're talking about the future, though. I guess so. I guess we are. So, and again, this is kind of a weird one because we've picked a movie from the middle of a long movie series based on a lengthy series of books, which I never read any of the the novels written uh, later by people other than Ian Fleming. I've heard good and bad things about them, but that's, it's not over yet. So it's hard, to, having plucked this one movie out of the this giant world, I guess our first question isn't that difficult. It's screen or no screen. <sighs> I'm going to say screen, but I'm going to say this is a screen that's not going to draw your attention all the time. This movie is, it's fun, it's energetic, but it's not a, it's not an edge of your seat thing all the time. It. It has its it has its dull points, <laughs> so it's great background stuff in that sense. Not completely, but it's it's just a fun like casual film. Yeah, in that sense. You, you can have this on and look up. It, it's not a movie you can watch with the sound off and just have it as the background in a party, like um, Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, but you can have this on and be distracted and look up every ten minutes and still follow it and still enjoy it. So I suppose I'll say screen. If I have to choose between screen or no screen, I kind of wish I could say, don't not screen. There's no reason not to watch this movie. Certainly, if you want to watch all the Bond movies, absolutely include this one. Watch it. But if you're choosing a James Bond movie to watch or a place to start watching James Bond movies... This is not the one. Yeah, this is... This don't make is, the, it was my first Bond movie, but don't make it yours. There's no good reason for that. Uh, that is a very powerful thing. This one, this one is more fun because I know what I'm getting out of a James Bond film, which means I can both see its highs and its lows. Yeah. So, I mean, I say if you want to start watching James Bond movies, start at the beginning and watch Dr. No. Oh. If you have to choose one and only one, make it You Only Live Twice. Okay. But... Um, I'm not sure where I'd suggest starting myself. Hmm. In some ways, I don't. It, for me, that the concept of Bond was such so generalized, it's hard for me to tell. But yeah. But the next one is revive, reboot, or rest in peace. And it's already been. I mean, James Bond as a as a concept is already is continuously being rebooted. Oh yeah, so I just have to chant reboot with it then. I think <laughs> the fact that you get new Bond, so the fact that we're talking about a franchise that is so big and expansive, and has so many different actors playing this and giving their own style to it, the fact that this character and these stories, I mean, the number of times specific books have been reinterpreted into a different Bond movie again over and over keeps happening it says something about the fact that it's almost becoming archetype like archetypal it's like this is a type of story in that sense and which means each new telling gets to say something more about when it's being told and so i say keep doing that keep making them keep shifting keep moving bond through the ages because it's taking photos of the ages as we go and we get to see that difference in that evolution. And that's another interesting point that you make. Uh, you mentioned the the retelling of the original stories through these movies. Until The Spy Who Loved Me, the movies were at least 
most of the movies were at least to some extent drawn from the novels whose titles they took. Lots of liberties taken, like with any cinematic adaptation, but Dr. No, the movie, was an adaptation of the novel Dr. No. From Russia with Love is an adaptation of that novel. The Spy Who Loved Me took a title, and that's it. Mm-hmm. None of this other stuff is in the novel at all. <laughs> Maybe the title, The Bad Guy, but I'm not even sure that's the case. And, of course, it went even farther astray, or exhibited even more freedom, to put it positively, in Moonraker and beyond. So, yeah, I think a reboot has to recognize that you can't be tied to the older James Bonds as much. And yet, there's still things to say. Exactly. But it's such a different world also. It is not the Cold War world in which James Bond began. It's not even the Cold War world in which uh, the Roger Moore movies took place. It's a world where Q gets more screen time every movie. But it's a world of greater technology, and it's a world where the tensions are coming at things from a different angle. And so, in some ways, the reboot aspect means we get to see a Bond adjust to that, change what he's doing in that sense. And I'm intrigued to see how that might happen. So, if the uh, if this latest Bond movie that came out recently is, in fact, Daniel Craig's last one, Do you want to see another reboot of the James Bond franchise after that? And if so, what are you looking at? What are you looking for in that? What would be the the boxes you would want to make sure that they fill? I like the idea of another reboot James Bond, and I almost like the idea of the man we've got with physical infiltration and physical charisma skills who attacks everything from the... Like, everyone's prepared for someone to try to hack into their server, but no one's expecting you to charm the security guard. And, like, (laughs) the one guy who's still holding on to an old method of spycraft, because there's a security in the thing that no one's expecting to still be tried, there's an effectiveness of that thing. And this, not a man out of time, but a man who, who sees the value in using the old and the new at the same time. And I can I can see that working for a new Bond. A Bond who plays with expectations in an era more so than any of the other ones. So you need a James Bond who who gets along with Q Branch better than the classic Bond. And oh, has, yeah. They, they have to cooperate. He, the, James Bond isn't there just to get the toys and then abuse them. This is a James Bond who would actually fill out the report as to how well the gadget worked at the end of the mission. And that's a weird, different Bond, but it's a Bond that would be good for this era. And it's a story that lets you keep telling these these kind of narratives, but for the new age that it's being set in, if you keep moving it up. Yeah, I like that. I, I like the idea of there being a reboot. I think that... It's it's a classic formula of a a lone hero with a code representing a bigger organization that in turn stands for something. It's, I'm, I'm trying to think of the most general way in which to put this, but we've seen that in storytelling for you know as long as there have been stories. So I want I'd like to see them keep telling stories with James Bond, and I can see that kind of a reboot to bring him into a once again, into what is now the modern world. Absolutely. (sighs) So, we could talk a whole lot more about James Bond. We could have a whole podcast about James Bond, and I'm sure there are some out there. There are, and I think we're going to have to watch more Bond films at some point, right? Oh, I believe we will. Oh, good. I believe we will. In the meantime, Dad, what intel can you give our... Our listeners about you. <laughs> well, you can find me most places as uh, by Matthew Porter. So go to bymatthewporter.com or find me on Twitter uh, at by Matthew Porter. And uh, from there, you'll find links to any of the other things that I'm doing. And Ian, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter as item crafting on Twitch as item crafting live and on at itemcrafting.com. And you can find the podcast at immproject.com. And that's where you will find a contact page where you can get in touch with us. You can find links to all of our past episodes. 
uh, almost three years worth now. Yeah. And you will find a link to our Patreon. Thanks very much to uh, anybody who's able to support us there. And if you do support us on Patreon, you will get additional audio content. And if you support us on Patreon at the IMMP Movie Club level, you will get who knows what kind of DVDs showing up in your mailbox every once in a while. You you want to have my experience of not knowing what you're about to watch sometimes? The Movie Club is what is designed <laughs> to give you that. And uh, you'll also find uh, a link to our shop where you can buy coffee mugs and t-shirts and, and other fun things. And you'll find us on Twitter at IMMPCast. And now you'll find us on YouTube, uh, where and you'll find a link to that on the website. And we've had some live streams up there, and we'll be having some additional videos up there for you on YouTube. So thanks very much for downloading this. Thanks very much for telling your friends about it. Uh, we really appreciate it. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more tales of media from the 20th century. And in the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>